A lot of the, how the Bible was first canonized and brought together was, was actually a, the desire of Constantine to, to get the Christians united because we're going to spread Rome across the world and we need a united front. So what ends up happening is basically there's this, what I call an unholy matrimony of church and state, uh, where the cross is co-opted by Constantine. And he, he might have been, I mean, he might have legitimately think he was helpful to the church, but you see what happens when anybody tries to use power to move the cross forward. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James, and welcome to another edition of Heath in Pursuit podcast. I am Heath Holmesby, and I will be the curator of this conversation for the next hour or so. Today we're talking with a man named Mr. Matt Brolight, and Matt is a pastor in North Seattle, Washington, who wrote a book that was given to me by a buddy named Jason Bosch, I don't know, a year or two ago. And he said, you guys should meet. You guys are kind of similar. Think a little bit alike. Think actually probably more alike than many in the world you guys swim in. And uh, I was like, okay, whatever. You know, let's do it. I'll read a book. I'm not usually too impressed with that sort of stuff because I've seen a lot of really terrible books. But this one just rocked my world because I was like, man, this guy's a great creative thinker. He's forward thinking. I don't know how he's leading a church while he's also talking like this because he's probably going to work himself out of a job one day. And so... I just thought it'd be kind of a fun conversation to see where it goes, and I reached out to Matt and said, hey, let's do Jason a solid favor and actually have a conversation like we promised we would. And so that's where we're at today. So uh, Matt, bro light, thank you so much for being on Heathen Pursuit. Absolutely. Good to be here. Uh, you know, it's it's crazy that we're just a couple miles from each other, but COVID has allowed us to do this over the uh, over the internets. And, and so you wrote a book that the last couple, I mean, probably a year I've been kind of mulling over quite a bit called Out of the Fourth Place. Mm-hmm. And what I really appreciate it is that it, it, address, it addresses this tension that I've been feeling for quite a while um, between the institutional church and Christendom and the go-and-make-disciple nature of Jesus. Uh, and and this tension actually is probably the reason that I'm not currently working or even attending an institutional church in a weekly setting. But I want to kind of pick your brain because I'm fascinated. Uh, having written now two books myself, I know that it takes a lot of drive and a lot of belief in something to sit down and write a, a, a thought-out book on something. So I'm curious where the concept of this book came from like what made you want to write it what kept your what like what drove you to keep skin in the game to get this thing through to production and maybe even unpacking for people that are not familiar with this idea of of the fourth place what that looks like yeah i mean maybe i should start there cuz maybe it's a confusing title and and i could tell you why i wrote it and sure. uh, like you said it's it's like that's a major undertaking to try to finish. I didn't, I'm not sure I really knew what I was getting into when I started. I just felt a, a big burden to write this and <laughs> thought it was important enough. Um, sure. We got the fourth place. It's called out of the fourth place. Uh, the idea comes from a lot of people are familiar with the third place. So uh, the places we hang out, the pubs and the coffee shops and the parks, um, just kind of these informal public spaces in our world. And 
which most of us are missing right now with COVID. You know, that's that's one of the hardest things. Um, but that idea actually came from a guy named Ray Oldenburg. He wrote a, a book called The Great Good Place. Okay. And that actually inspired Howard Schultz. A, a lot of people don't know the story, but um, founder of Starbucks, you know, Howard Schultz, he, he was spending a lot of time in Italy, um, really inspired by the Italian piazzas and just, you know, like, why doesn't America have this kind of stuff? You know, why, why are people hanging out in public and actually enjoying each other in Europe, but they're not doing that, you know, and we're stuck in our suburban homes and, sure. and isolated from each other. And so he brought that back and actually wanted to make Starbucks America's third place. Because um, in that book by Oldenburg, it's, it's uh, the first place is the home, what he calls private life. Okay. Second place is work, what he calls productive life. And then the third place is this informal public life, these places we hang out. Um, hmm. And I started to think, I, I read that book um, and loved it. He's this brilliant sociologist. And I started to think, where does church fit into this paradigm? And I started to realize it it just doesn't. Hmm. Um, and and I also started to realize if, if there's a category called informal public life, uh, Oldenburg really should have had another category called formal public life because there's, there's actually a lot of things that don't fit in his paradigm. So country clubs, stadiums, sure, um, all the places we we have membership to, that kind of thing. So um, anyway, so the idea of the fourth place is it's it's this formal public life. And I actually realized church fits there and it really shouldn't. Is that fourth place, uh, I mean, was this ultimately your invention, this kind of thought, or was it was it was it a progression of your thoughts from this book or was or had you heard this fourth place before and you're like i'm just going to pack it a bit more uh i had not heard it before i i think it was an original idea I, i've actually heard some people theorize other ideas what the fourth place could be you know the internet or mm-hmm. or whatever um so i've heard that idea but i don't, I don't know that they read his book sure. you know in, in coming up with that and so um what what it was for me was a way of what what I love when I write is I like to describe something in as simple way as possible. And I had this jumble of thoughts. And this gets into your question of, you know, why why did you write the book? Sure. Um I had all these, you know, just things that were bugging me for really for decades, honestly. Hmm. Um one, you know, churches just aren't producing disciples that live and act like Jesus. We're producing these consumers. Sure. That know how to consume church and attend church, um, but it's not like this life-changing Jesus experience that you know. A lot of people are, are saying, you know, churches. Why? Why don't you actually live and act like Jesus? Hmm. Um, also, so many friends. Uh, I've been in the ministry world for a long time. So many friends burning out, just getting fried, getting used and abused, and really chewed up by the system. Yep. And that that was just. Uh, a burden for like, why is this happening so consistently? It's not like it's a one-off thing. This is like a consistent pattern. Sure. Um, churches are, are misusing resources. Churches aren't a safe place for dialogue. They're, they're just kind of these places for monologues from the platform. And mm-hmm. uh, so many people have a, have a distaste for this. And I wanted to, to, you know, kind of encapsulate all that in an idea. And so for me, that was the idea of the fourth place. And, so what the book does is it tells the story of how church ended up in the fourth place because Jesus actually spent all of his life in the first, second, and third places. So in in homes, and that's yeah. where the early church met was in homes, and then second places, you know, workplaces or um, places where people would go to be 
productive or third places. You know, I, I tell a lot about the story of the woman in the well, mm-hmm. the woman at the well in the book. And, and that's really, that was the third place for this Samaritan town called Sikar was, was people hung out around the well. Um, and Jesus meets this woman there. He ends up spending much of time in their homes, just being with them and they love him. And that's such a different yeah. experience than, than so much of Christianity today, which really is so imperialistic that we Im- impose our culture on others. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do in the book was tell the story of how Christianity shifted from this, this servant posture um, that integrates itself into the world to this really imperialistic posture, which, which imposes itself on the world. Hmm. And so I tell a lot of the story of church history and especially the person of Constantine in the 300s, how that happened and how that still impacts us today. So that's, that's really the, what the book's about. And it's kind of how to break free from that. Um, whether you're in the institution still or whether you're ready for kind of radically new ways of, of experiencing uh, life in Jesus. Yeah, you know, um, it, your book was really reminiscent of a book that I read a couple years ago that actually just ruined me called Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola. And and huh. he, he actually took how—he he walked through how so much of what we do in American evangelicalism is— is different than the early church, and he talks about where where that fell apart. And so he, you know, uh, mm. now the the payment of pastors, the way we do tithes, the way we do our budgets, the way we build massive buildings, and and so as I was yeah. reading your book, I was like, some of it was very familiar in the sense of we there's these normatives that we just kind of, you know, we've been raised mm-hmm. in this climate in this space and time, and it's so familiar to us. But if we kind of zoom out the lens a bit, we go, it hasn't always been this way. And one of the things that you mention uh, in your book is that the early church carried like this ethos of integration with culture rather than a separation from culture. And you say that Paul had no interest in attracting people to a polished event in a beautiful building, and that the early church was not really trying to get people into their Christian temples. They were trying to get the living temple into their world. And I'm curious... Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe you could give us a little bit of context to this and share how you uh, are combating that, because it's got to be an interesting place, because you're also, I mean, you're also working in an institutional church, so I just kind of wonder how you're, how you're yeah. walking on that fence and trying to do this in a way that, that, uh, that pays your bills, but also doesn't compromise what you actually believe about the integrity of, of the original text. Yeah. Uh, I'll start on the the theoretical theological side there, and then if if I don't meander back to the practical in my life now, remind okay. me. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I spent a long time in in church leadership as a worship leader, mm-hmm. and I know you're a musician too. We got to yeah. connect more on that sometime. Um, yeah, I love that. But I, I'm curious your experience. Uh, I just experienced so much really bad theology as I was go to worship conferences. Mm-hmm. And it just felt to me like the like this is a this is a done deal. Like the 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 direction that churches are supposed to go, and that anyone in the right mind or theology would go is we got to get bigger and better, and more polished and more produced, mm. and and that's what will draw people um, to our thing. Yep. And and you know, so churches are using this just mass marketing schemes. Uh, to, to build up their kingdom and it just it just 
it always grated against me hmm. like how you know jesus seemed to think like we're supposed to be able to be unified as a body we're supposed to be servants how, how is this um even related and, and what i realized that a lot of the, the scriptures they would use to justify this um i would just realize consistently they were using them really really wrong so uh, like a, a scripture like romans 12 is like a classic for worship people it's yeah like, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Mm. Um, and they would take that and they say, okay, offer your bodies to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That means, you know, we got to get into it. We got to lift our hands. We got to raise, you know, it's, it's, yep. it's all about the Sunday morning thing yeah. centered. And, and they've totally ignored the context. Like the context of that verse, it's like the next verse is like, don't conform any longer to the patterns of the world. And it's all about like using all your gifts to serve people mm. and showing mercy to people and, and loving each other really well. Yeah. And I started to realize there's a really a misunderstanding about the idea of temple. Hmm. Um, a lot of the ideas of what people are trying to create in churches right now are really reminiscent of the Old Testament temple and later Constant, Constantine's temple. But yeah. Just in terms of the Old Testament temple, it was, it was, it was um, a beautiful thing for its season. But in in the forms of the temple, the, the way that it was structured, it had messages built into that. Yep. So uh, uh, one of the big ideas in my book is the medium is the message. Hmm. Um, this comes from a guy named Marshall McLuhan, who's a, a media theory expert back in the 60s. Um, brilliant guy and he really challenged us that you know the medium itself contains this message and so i started asking what what is the medium of the temple what is the message of that medium and and, and the basic message is separation hmm. so you've got this holy of holies at the center that's separate from the next layer out and and really if you're a female if you're a gentile if you are defiled in any way there's, there's no access to the center sure um which in today's language would be is 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 totally unacceptable. But what that did in the Old Testament temple is, is it is it communicated the holiness of God. Hmm. Um, and then what happened? What was supposed to happen was the the curtain was supposed to be torn in two through Jesus. Yeah. Um, and really, it was this shift in temple. So you got the this New Testament theology of the temple that that you people community you are the temple of the holy spirit you know paul says this over and over again peter says this mm. um, you are the building you are the temple as you go out as you live in community integrated with culture you are this living temple that that is actually the, the hands of god to to love and to serve like you know to be salt and light mm. spread throughout the world so there's this there's this centered temple idea which is an old testament idea okay and then there's this mobile temple idea, which is a New Testament idea. And I just realized over and over again, as I, as I was part of these, these worship cultures, um, that we were really stuck in this centered idea. Hmm. And it was preventing us from having any type of unity between, from church to church. It was preventing us from using our resources to love the community because we were so stuck yep. loving ourselves and building up our own thing. Um, and it just felt really backwards to me. And I, I've just been processing this for decades and yeah. wanted to communicate this idea of a fourth place to help people understand what's going on, the theology underneath it, you know, yeah, and what we can do about it. You know, it reminds me of, um, you know, the pattern of Old Testament worship was the come and 
come and see model. And then Jesus flips it and says, no, now we're going to go and make. And it doesn't. And, and I wonder yeah, too, good. you know, like, so you have Old Testament come and see, New Testament go and make. Um, and, and yet there's this attachment to, I mean, the last church I served in was a, you know, an older Presbyterian church. And there's this, there's this concept of like, oh no, we're going to be missional, but we also need to do a $6 million refresh to make this a really, we're going to be missional, but we're going to put in a, a nice new coffee shop that actually competes with a bunch of other coffee shops in our same city block. Yeah, or, which makes a lot of sense. You know, why? Yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> the Christian coffee. Go, go to the, go to the, yeah. Why do we need Christian coffee? Yeah. And it's like, you know, or what if Just go be with people, be normal. Yeah. Just go out and, and, and enjoy life. But there seems to be, I think Christendom really did a, you know, no, I'm speaking on on this side of it, having just seen maybe the tail end even in my life. But um, I know there was a great appreciation for the older the older folks in that congregation of of having a centeredness and a place. Uh, you know, the, the idea of of being a missional minded Christian who was out in the city and engaging culture and appreciating culture and actually going. No, culture is good, and there's beauty in it, and and there's good art mm-hmm. outside. You know, there's great movies being produced by non-Christian thinkers. There's really great yeah. uh, woodworking and and graffiti art being done by people who don't have uh, the claim of a Christian. Mm-hmm. And yet, that was that, that was really hard to appreciate. That it was like, no, it has to be done here. Why why do it out in a city? Why rent a local theater? Why? go out and encourage our musicians to go play in local coffee shops and bars and pubs when we could just do it here and try to invite people into this old method. And it just felt like that appeal to like, we can't shake the come and see method. And I think that if, if many pastors were really honest and said, okay, let's look at our overall systems. Let's look at the way we communicate. Let's look at the, the way that, that we have the congregation involved. Are we actually a pattern of, mobile church that is pushing out into this beautiful integration with culture. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I just don't know if many are able to accurately say that, because it seems like when I was working in the institutional church, Jesus's command of go and make disciples um, was the highest ask was, hey, we've got a really great church staff. They're the pros. And so if you guys could just go put out some door hangers and maybe mention it to your neighbor and get him to come here and we'll put on a really great show. And you go like, yeah. oh yeah, we're really missional, aren't we? And I'm like, no, I don't think you get the concept of like, this yeah, is flipping it. Us versus them mentality. Yeah. And it's like, and they are dirty and unclean and we are the holy insiders. And yeah, yeah, all of this is, is totally that, that old Testament temple type of language. As you're talking, I, I'm thinking, um, I mean, that, that is so much the mindset, even, even our terms for that room, you know, the sanctuary, mm-hmm. it's, it's that, you know, the sanctus, that's the, that's the Latin holy or, you know, um, so it's this holy place or the worship center, it's sure. center of worship and our, in our language, you know, when we get up on the platform and we say, you know, welcome to the house of God, uh, we, we just have it so ingrained yeah. in, in church culture, this temple language, the centered language. Well, even uh, the sense of the call to worship, yeah. right? Of like, hey, let's worship. Like, no, we're always worshiping yeah. something. Well, this isn't a light switch. Absolutely. You know? yeah. It's not like, okay, now we've ended it and we'll continue it next Sunday at 10 o'clock. It's, yes. yeah. See, a lot of people just haven't connected those dots. It, it's just so ingrained in the way of thinking and, and they don't 
realize that that's actually rooted in the fourth century, not the first century. Hmm. Um, so that, a lot of what I do in the book is just try to try help people connect those dots of what ha- what shifted, um, you know, from the early church, 100s, 200s, 300s to, to what happens under Constantine in the fourth century to really to shift that whole mentality and create this new temple, create this new holy place and how how that's still just being lived out today because it it is um and you asked a question earlier just about i'm 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 working at an institutional church yeah um i think that that word institutional is interesting um i I hear that thrown around a lot i've i don't use it as much i'm I'm curious what you think about this because there's a lot of and i I challenge us in the book a little bit i say you know it's almost like an attack against any type of organization as if as if the enemy is is organization in general, hmm. um, and what I try to do is is give a little bit of hope that you know the the answer is not in like Christian anarchy. Sure, <laughs> uh, the hope is in a different type of institution. You know, there there are yeah. other types of institutions that are actually communicating by the their structures, by the way they meet that a, a fundamentally different message. That it's a, a message of integration and reconciliation and and service rather than this imperialistic, you know, in, in, you know. So that's a lot of what mm. people say about institutional. Um, so I try to say, that's you know, what if point. we, what if we kind of redeemed that word a little bit, or you know, and not blame organization in general, but what if we, what if we looked at the fundamental makeup of the organizations and institutions and I feel like that hmm. gives people some handles to say, okay, well, we can still have a level of organization and and communicate a different message. Yeah, um, I don't know. What, what do you? Yeah, I think I, actually, I think that's a really fair point. And even as you were saying that, I was thinking, man, maybe I haven't been fair with that. I, I, um, I would say that my experience with what I would deem an institutional church is um, is this underlying idea that is actually provable that we have to protect this at all cost. And so the churches that I've been in is like, hey, this might make more sense for the community, but if we do that, we don't have jobs and we got to protect this. And so we got to keep the institution alive. And so I think that's what I get at when I'm, when I'm speaking to the institution is, you know, there's, there's, there hasn't it was always the pragmatic of like, hey, we really do think that the right thing to do would be to make this uh, change for the denomination or make this change for our local congregation. Except, man, if we do that, we're going to lose the big community of givers who are going to be pretty pissed off at us, and so yeah. we can't make that. So that so that when I when I'm when I'm saying institution, I'm saying if the priority is always to keep the institution alive at all costs that you actually compromise the integrity of what you believe you're supposed to do because that might jeopardize uh, the career of the pastor or something like that. That's yeah, I what think, I deem. I think what you're getting at there is what is the financial driver mm-hmm. of this thing? And if and if we are going to keep the institution alive, the institution really implies um, longevity. Yeah. Um, that word. I mean, even, a, you, you know, you'll call a person an institution. I think of like a you know, a good basketball coach, like a Dean Smith or, you know, whoever, they're like an institution in that place. You know, it's, mm. it's just been there that they're yeah, that's uh, a, good point. a long-term player and so much that they call it, they call them an institution. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you have longevity? Well, you got to keep it financially viable. Um, 
So a lot of, so some of what I do in the book is I, I say, well, what is our financial driver? Mm-hmm. And if our financial driver is Sunday morning tithes, then that's going to put us in a really bad place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> if, if that's the only thing that that's going to keep us alive, then we got to keep those people happy. Well, and um, is it cra- as crazy as it seems, like I almost would be way more bought into a a senior pastor that goes like, hey guys, um, I'm really feeling this, and I think this is actually going to make gospel impact in the city. Heads up. This might be the uh, this might be the Russian roulette chamber with the bullet in it for all of our careers, and it might end what we're doing. But I really feel like this is the spirit leading us, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take a jump and see what happens. And and I and I think that's I just haven't been around the church that's willing to take risks like that. They go like, oh, that might work, yeah. but man, then I mean we've we've been saving up for this new sound system. Like the you know the worship leader needs new in ears, and we yeah. and so. That's the kind of thing. Like, I, I want to be part of a, I want to be part of a community that's risky. And I remember there's an old uh, controversial preacher to many called John Piper, and he, I really appreciate him. I, I mean, my daughter's named after him. He, he had a huge impact in my life. But he had this whole m- concept of we need to be Christians need to posture themselves as like um, in a wartime mentality. Like we are a mobile people and. And we got to be ready to pack up and go, and we got to get ready, you know. So once we, once we institutionalize and cement and concrete and form budgets that that are so constricting to what we're actually bringing in versus what our bills are, we don't really allow the opportunity for for the spirit to challenge us and to and to be creative because we're trapped in essentially the the structures that we've built that we're now captive to. Yeah. Yeah. We're enslaved by the system and we, uh, we feel obligated to, to keep it alive at all costs. I, I love what you're saying. I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, that was a really convicting question. Like, I don't think you were intended to, to like, well, what do you mean by clarifying this? But by, by being, by pushing back a little bit, um, I'm having now to process like, well, it seems like there's in some people, it, it seems like there's kind of two options. It's either, uh, buy into this system or or kill the system and burn it to the ground, you know. And yeah. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is say, well, let's let's actually analyze the system and the institution and the organization because maybe there's like fundamentally different patterns that you could use, which actually communicate a different message, maybe have a different financial driver. Um, yeah. You were asking earlier what I'm doing right now. I'm, right now, I'm a pastor at a church called North Seattle Church, and. I'm there mostly because that's the church I grew up in. So I, I moved back from Denver about five years ago. I was working for a mega church out in Denver okay. as I was as I was writing this book. Um, I was both working at the mega church and taking part in this neighbor church, which is a much more organic uh, thing, which I, I talk a lot about in the book. Uh, but I come back to Seattle um, to really help revitalize North Seattle church, church I grew up at. But what, what I the thing that was really interesting to me that I love because I, I studied this in seminary. I studied you know, churches that are intentionally structuring themselves differently, you know, for different financial drivers for di- sure. for making community impact rather than, you know, just kind of this bigger, better Christianity program, which I'm, I'm so not interested in. Yeah. And it felt like this was a really good opportunity to live some of that out because um, it was a church that used to be kind of a big attractional church, like come see the big preacher, uh, that was really the attraction. It was kind of a commuter church, and in its sure. heyday, there was eight hundred thousand people. 
so not a huge church, but a, a pretty thriving church for Seattle. And it's kind of whittled down now to around 250 people on a Sunday. And that, that's back when we could actually meet. Sure. <laughs> on Sunday. Yeah. But one thing they, they started to do, and I think some of it was out of necessity um, and some of it was intentional, was they started to turn turn their building into a, really a community center. Mm. Um, some of that was just to rent it out to get profit because we got to survive. Sure. Uh, but I think they started to realize some things in the process. And and not only did they rent out space, but they started a medical clinic. Um, it's called Lahai Health. Oh, wow. And it, it really serves the people of North Seattle. There's, there's a, a real big immigrant population that mm. is just un, uncovered by, by uh, health care insurance. Uh, and there's a lot of, um, you know, people that are really struggling with insurance, a lot of people being laid off. I mean, right now, sure. there's a massive amount of people without insurance because all the layoffs and COVID and everything. Yeah. Um, Lahai Health is very busy right now. <laughs> um, but they, they've grown as their own 501c3, but they, they started out of out of our church and they still use a lot of the space in that building. Um, in our building, there's also two Young Life offices. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, Shoreline Young Life and, and North Seattle Young Life both office out of there. Um, there's a Messianic synagogue that meets there. There's an Ethiopian church plant that meets there. There's Northwest Girl Choir, which is, a, I mean, over 200 girls in this organization. Um, there's a, a preschool. This is not a Christian preschool. It's, a, it's called Little Nest Preschool. Okay. Beautiful people leading it. Love it. Um, but anyway, over the last uh, 20 years, the building has really been reshaped. And, and, they, and they built a coffee shop. Which what I love about the coffee shop is it's it's not a Christian coffee shop. It's, oh, it's not God, God's coffee. Um, I mean, we, we run it, we we employ the people, but it's it's very much a legitimate third place. It's it runs wow. on regular business hours, and it is such a community hub hmm. for that area. Uh, just reopened this last week, and people are like celebrating like crazy. Sure, they, they've missed it. Um. And what what we've learned through all of this is is that you know when you've got all these tenants and they're they're paying a lot of the the bills, um, ministry can actually be a little simpler. I mean, we're, there's there's different struggles. Obviously, running a community center, um, dealing with all the tenant relationships and contracts and all that, but there is a, a different financial driver where we we don't feel as pressed. I think as some churches that we got to keep Sunday morning happening. And I, I think this is a really a strain right now with COVID because it's like it, it, you asked, you asked um, in, in your email, you asked, asked questions about, you know, what are churches doing about COVID? But sure. I think it's a really interesting thing. So many churches feel obligated right now. Like I gotta, I gotta create this Sunday morning experience online for people. Um, they're not even questioning, you know, the venue that people are actually living in. Like we're watching these things from living rooms and yet you're giving us this auditorium worship experience that doesn't even make sense in the space in which we're we're experiencing it um, because we've, we've so we just need to recreate that product because it's our driver. You know, if we don't create that and people, you know, they depend on that, um, we're going to we're going to lose people and they're going to find some other, you know, service more interesting sure. or more, more produced and they're going to leave us, which is just sad. What do you think we're experiencing today in the institutional church or in the local church, uh, the gathered church, that was affected by Constantine that we would typically just kind of 
uh, roll up and throw under the label of business as usual? Like, how, how did Constantine affect where we are today? Great question. There, it's a little bit unclear about what Constantine himself did versus what happened during his reign. But what happened during his reign, basically, and this, this is incredibly relevant for today, actually, mm-hmm. and for the Trump administration and all this, uh, and how, how leaders can co-opt um, symbols in order to gain people onto their side. And yeah. if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that, too. Sure. Um, but basically what happened in... In 303, there was this, it was the great persecution under Emperor Diocletian in Rome. Rome's really floundering at this point. It's not like the, the height of the Roman Empire. They're struggling, and Christians are being persecuted like crazy. So then Constantine comes on the stage, and it was a really interesting moment. He, he, he claims to see a sign in the sky of, of a cross, and the words, in this sign, conquer. Hmm. Um, which, if you think of the symbol of the cross— um, it is not a symbol of conquering. You yeah. know, it is a symbol uh, in Judaism of of the curse of God. You know, in Rome, yeah. it was a traitor's death. This this is a sign of vulnerability, of weakness, of death. Well, and on um, this side of history, you just go, man, conquer is such an empirical term. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. it is empire. <laughs> you know, it's steeped in empire. Absolutely. So, so what happens? Um, so a lot of people saw Constantine like, oh man, he's he's the Christian hero because what happens is under the Edict of Milan, which there's some historical debate about whether that even happened. Sure, but Christians became free of persecution, which was which was a big deal to them. Okay, um, I would even equate that a little bit with the abortion issue of today. Like Christians long for this this thing to be solved so bad that they're willing to to give up a bunch of other things in the process to get it sure um and and this kind of happened with with constantine and persecution so he ends the persecution makes uh, this massive of christians happy uh, meanwhile you know rome's divided into four different territories at this time he's able to unite the empire get the christians on his side yeah and then what ends up happening is he he kind of makes the cross the sign of the of his empire and he wants a united empire so he he throws these church councils and he says christians get your act together um and that's the the council of nicaea you know in 325 which the nicene creed and mm. a lot of the, even how the bible was first canonized and brought together was was actually at um the desire of constantine to to get the christians united because we're gonna we're gonna spread Rome across the world and we need a united front. So what ends up happening is basically there's this, what I call an unholy matrimony of church and state Hmm. uh, where the cross is co-opted by Constantine. And he, he might've been, I mean, he might've legitimately think he was helpful to the church. Uh, I think his mom was a legitimate Christian converted, but, but you see what happens when anybody tries to use power to move the cross forward um, so they basically systematize the whole thing. They they put it all in Latin. So even if it's even if it's going to Barcelona or to you know to France, we're still doing it in Latin. Um, they started elevating buildings above uh, the surrounding town. So where you where you see the cathedrals with the the big steeples and the and the bells sure. calling people. You know they put it at the center of the center of society. Um, you know, some would say that's that's so beautiful, beautiful architecture, and I, I love that sentiment. But it was also very much uh, the idea of the this is how we're going to control people, um, 
and maintain power. And, and in that, in that time period, the stages were elevated. Mm. Priests started wearing the robes. They started sitting on these platforms and they started even sitting behind these screens. They call the rude screen. Um, and it was, it was really a recreation of this holy place uh, from the old Testament. They, they, they even in, in the, the, in these screens, they even stitched into them these cherubim, um, which were stitched into the curtain of the Holy of Holies, which oh, is wow. really interesting. Um, so under Constantine, it really is this recreation of this Old Testament temple system. And the strength of that system was that you know people needed to go there year after year to have their sins forgiven. And, and really what happened was Constantine, I think, saw a lot of opportunity there. Like if we keep people dependent on priests, um, to keep them coming back to get this commoditized grace, then then we're going to be able to control masses of people. And, and what it did will ultimately turn Christianity from this beautiful posture of, of serving the world, integration of the world, to kind of this magic show um, of these mysterious priests hmm. uh, that they didn't even really get to participate in, especially if they didn't even speak the language. Um, yeah. And it became place of enculturation rather than a place of diversity um so so much was lost they, they gained the persecution piece but yeah. they, they really lost a lot of their soul that, okay so that's really fascinating um I, I do want to kind of press into this a bit because you know for people that don't know kind of how i do this show i'll send the guest a bunch of questions They're like hey here's some things i'd love to talk about if the conversation stalls but we don't have to go there at all and sometimes things pop up unexpectedly and that's even more fun so and you mentioned just a minute ago, like, hey, talking about how this ties into kind of a current political structure. And uh, let's press into that a little bit. Maybe you can can give us some thoughts as to... Because even as you're talking about, like, the church like the church moving towards being in the center of town and some people really appreciate, appreciating that, I mean, my mind instantly went to press photos of Trump holding a Bible in front of a church at a time when exactly. it just seems... I was like, that is, in my mind, a perfect parallel. And I don't want to read into something you're not proposing, but... But maybe yeah, you maybe you could maybe we can go there. Yeah, and in general, you know, as a pastor, I try to be pretty careful not to telling people how to vote sure. and all that. But but when I saw that happen in DC and 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 literal video footage of of under Trump's order, um, people with these plastic shields literally just slamming them into peaceful journalists just yeah. sitting there. Um, also, that you could have a photo op with a Bible by St. John's Church, um, the first image that came to my mind was was Constantine. Mm. I was like, oh my gosh, in this sign, conquer, you know? Yeah, here we are. Uh, that feels to me like what's happening in this moment. I know a lot of pastors like to stay out of, of, of politics unless you're maybe in the deep, uh, you know, Bible Belt. Like I see some of the Robert Jeffress stuff and some of the stuff coming out of Texas where I'm like, well, they don't have a problem being political, even though they say they weren't. But but yeah. when you have somebody who is actually doing harm against the people of God, and we can't, I mean, look, Scripture seems to be pretty clear that we're never going to have a just ruler until everything's restored. Um, right. But when you have somebody that is oppressing people in the name of God, do you feel a responsibility to go, hey, it's not, you know, it's it's kind of taboo for pastors to talk politics, but we're at a place right now where there's so much injustice and so much division and so much opposite of the uh, of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes happening that 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 for the sake of the 
underprivileged for the sake of those on the bottom end of this these systemic structures I have to put up a voice like I have to be prophetic with my voice and, and actually stand up to this power do you ever feel that pressure oh absolutely I mean just this last week you know we've been preaching through the gospel of John and uh, it's my turn we have a preaching team there's three of us okay. that do much of the preaching and um and, you know, sermons are an interesting thing because, you know, they're, they can really be used as this means of control and kind of a monologue, but also they can be, they can really be also, you can change the medium of the sermon to create it more of a conversation. And that's, that's what I try to do. So yeah. I, I don't try to use that as a way of telling everybody what to believe, but what I feel obligated to do is to make people aware of of the heart of, of the scripture, the heart of God mm-hmm. and, and to understand a little bit of history. So even this last week um, I was preaching on, it was the crucifixion and it was this moment where Pontius Pilate um, I think is really convicted that Jesus might actually be the son of God. But in the end, you know, he, he sentences him to death and you got these Jewish leaders, which was not a race thing. It was just, they're, they're trying to maintain control. Sure and power and they say crucify him crucify him and i yeah i couldn't help take that moment to say you know this is really the same traps that we all fall into today that that on the right and the left there's this trap i think that the jewish leaders were falling into in that moment of of you know we need to maintain power if we're going to get our agenda accomplished yeah i think there's a lot of people on the right that feel that it's like well i'm going to put up with the lies and, and and the abuse and all mm. of this stuff to get my agenda forward. And so I felt compelled that moment to say the cross has never needed power to move its agenda forward. And actually, you know, if the, if the agenda of the right, you know, there's a lot of people that voted for Trump because of the abortion issue yep. and the Supreme court, um, which also is related with abortion issue. A lot of single issue voters, um, and and I understand what they're doing there. I understand they're fighting for human rights, and that's a big deal. Um, but I also want to challenge a little bit to say, you know, do we need to do that? Because if you look at the early church, um, though those that took the path of the cross, you know, John and Mary and these others in the early church, they actually did an amazing amount about abortion. Like the hmm. in Rome, it was really common to expose babies. They called it exposure. They would just leave them out on the street, and the Christians would take them in, would love them, uh, would nurse them back to health. Um, wow. With pandemics, there's these amazing writings in the, in the early church about these plagues that would break out, and Rome would, would just be freaked out, and they'd, they'd leave, but the Christians would nurse people back to health. Yeah, uh, It's like if you want your agenda to move forward, there's, there's a, a, the mode of the cross matters as much as, as the symbol Hmm. Uh, you can't just co-opt the symbol and use it as an imperialistic powers, you know, yeah. thing. I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, and I get that it's hard. Uh, I get that sometimes it's like the lesser of two evils for people. You were saying that you're part of a preaching team. And this is kind of interesting because I'd like to talk about the role of a preacher or even, you know, like a preaching team for a minute. 
Because you mentioned yeah. in your book that preaching has always had an important place, but it's not our primary means of growth, that the pastor's role is not merely to feed the already satiated, but to cultivate spiritual hunger and a culture of self-feeding. And I really appreciate this way of thinking, and I'm in full agreement of it, because uh, I actually heard a quote the other day from Rob Bell who said that many sermons are pure propaganda. Most sermons are about telling these people what they already know, and they already believe, and they've already been taught to believe, so that they can continue to believe that they're the only ones who've got this right. And uh, mm-hmm. and I just love that quote because there's something that is not, and I don't know if this is like an Age of Enlightenment thing or the pushback on questioning, but but uh, to the beauty of being invited into questioning text and to having each text having multiple potential meanings and that when you see a pastor get up there and go like, this is exactly what the text means, and you're like, okay, white boy from you know Spokane <laughs> who's who's read you know a couple key theologians in your life you you studied greek for a year you know yeah yeah exactly okay you read an nt right book you're the expert i get it but um i'm just kind of curious like why do you think in the church that, that there's such a focus on the sermon being the main thing and often when churches can only make a single hire it's often the preaching pastor not somebody who is mobilizing people for mission and can use volunteers to communicate um is there a way of yeah. of, of the future of the church that could look look a bit different that could invite more questions than answers that could invite uh more mm-hmm. room for different lines of thinking that you know what are your thoughts Great question. yeah once again i you know i i think it's worth trying to untangle preaching uh, from the fourth century and again kind of talk about what did it look like in the first century and what did growth look like and what did discipleship look like hmm. Um, cause if you look at the life of Jesus, obviously there's, there's sermons, we got sermon on the Mount, we've got some long teachings, but in general, it's, it's really clear his mode of growth is discipleship. So he brings this group of people along with him so that when they cross, you know, the Sea of Galilee together and they encounter racism, you know, in this area, he's able, he's able to say, you know, no, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. We, we love these people, you know, when they go yeah. to Samaria, Uh, And they're shocked. You know, you would sit down with a woman. You would you would ask her for a drink. You know, we don't do that. Like that's that's unclean. You know, he's able to take that moment to to teach them. And and it's about experience. And the image I use in the book is immersion growth. So if you think of language development, I mean, we I think most of us know that the, the worst way of learning a language is like a didactic classroom setting where somebody just sure preaches at you these these are the words you know repeat them i think we would all admit that spending a week in mexico is going to be a lot better than a year in in a classroom you know in a lot of ways Hmm. um the amount of growth that happens so um so i love jesus immersion training i think that's what we're missing today is that discipleship growth spiritual formation is oftentimes more caught than taught Um, We catch it along the way when we're with people that are a little bit further along the path than us. Mm. Um, And I think there's so many people that have listened to literally hundreds and hundreds of sermons that are really frustrated. Like, why do I still get defensive with my wife? (laughs) Why do I still yell at my kids? And, And because the sermons are not doing enough to help us catch Christianity, they're just lecturing us and making us feel guilty a lot of the time. Hmm. Um, so I, I try to use sermons as a way to push the growth edge for people sure. and invite them into kind of this liminal space of, of learning. But 
I think what's more important is experiential learning. And uh, in the book, I use Starbucks as an example. I've got a good friend that's one of the directors of operations in Starbucks. And oh, cool. They, they have a 70-20-10 model where uh, when they're training employees, it's literally it's 70% of the training is just on-the-job training. Hmm. It's experiential learning. It's this immersion learning. Um, 20% is coaching, you know, and, and 10% is content. Hmm. So if you apply that to the church and think of our percentages, um, I, you know, it, I, I actually I think the Starbucks model really mirrors the life of Jesus. Hmm. So he's seventy percent of the time, you know, when you, when you're reading the Gospels, it's like they're they're just they're just cruising along the countryside, and he he's like walking past a field, and he's like, you know, the kingdom of God is like is like this grain, and he he just takes an object example and he uses it, yeah. And then he coaches them and he takes them as a little group and he says, you know, when I said this, this is kind of what I meant. Um, and, and, then, and then maybe 10% of the time it's these longer sermons, which, which they're just kind of a part of and they're seeing his teaching and they're a part of. But um, I think we've just got that flipped upside down, honestly. Yeah. Um, and a lot of reason we, we did that is actually that, that same idea of fourth century, the need for power and control. Um, what happened in the fourth century is the creation of the Latin mass. So this is Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And the high point of the mass is called the elevation of the host. So that's when these priests, you know, literally separated from the laity um, behind their screens, they would raise up the elements, you know, and consecrate them to God. Um, Hmm. People didn't even get to participate in them. So, I mean, talk about a lack of experiential learning, but what happened in the Protestant Reformation is you know a lot of people would say the elevation of the host was just the the medium didn't change that much the, the content did so we we they didn't you know the protestants didn't do the elevation of the host anymore but what happened was they just elevated the pulpit hmm. so john calvin in geneva um i have read a lot of primary source documents about what happened there and uh just really interesting stuff but sure. basically they use the same building. So these the same kind of basilica shaped long aisled buildings. Um, they basically just tore down all the religious iconography of the Catholic church. They tore out the organs yep. um, for the music and they just replaced the priestly duties that were done in Latin with this sermon moment. Hmm. Um, rather than rethinking the fourth place in general, like, like should learning all happen in this building? Yeah. Um, those those weren't the questions that were asked. It was basically just how do we take an already dependent people, you know, dependent on the mass and yep. just change the content and, and we think that that's gonna solve the problem. And and what we're left with is is Protestant churches that have just replaced the elevation of the host with the elevation of the pulpit. Yeah. But we never really dealt with the immersion growth problem. Yeah, you're right. I mean uh, I was actually working on my doctoral dissertation. I was writing about artists in the church, and and Calvin was a point for me where, I mean, I used to be a five-point Calvinist pretty strongly, and I just started seeing, like, man, he was actually the guy that pushed the art out of the churches. And he, you know, the... Yeah, interesting. And, and yeah, and, like, now, now you make things about the word, and so let's get the pulpit front and center, except you have an illiterate culture. So, like, not the best, not the best use of that time and space, but he... Uh, yeah, I could talk on him for quite a bit, but I think that's fascinating, and I think it also actually lends itself to kind of what the future 
of the church looks like. And from a teaching standpoint, I've been really fascinated reading uh, a lot of the way that rabbis, like the way that rabbis taught and the way that rabbis actually, you know, chose their students and the way that, that rabbis had different ways of thinking. And so it would be like, I would be, I follow Rabbi Hollinsby or I follow Rabbi Piper or I follow Rabbi Bell or I follow Rabbi mm-hmm. Zond or whatever it is. Uh, and it wasn't like, hey, that guy's wrong. We are the ones that got it right. It was, oh, this is the way he sees the text and this is the way he sees the text. And the consensus was there's room at the table for all these people to to have a seat and and have their thoughts on what this text could look like. And it it was less about getting it right and more about engaging the potential of of the ramifications of what this text actually is. I think there's so much more power in a good question than a good answer. Oh yeah. So often. Absolutely. And the process. I think I think we just minimize so often the process that it takes to grow and assume that, you know, 30 minute sermon, you know, well, once you get it cognitively, that should just translate into your heart and your life and and and, yeah. and your workplace and it's it's not that easy i mean growth just doesn't happen like that yeah so then i'm, I'm curious um kind of last question here is is uh as we're wrapping things up what are your hopes for the future of of the church like and maybe what would you ask people um that are listeners of this show to consider whether they're pastors or you know, congregational attendees, or even people that just don't care about the Christian faith. Like if you could paint us a little bit of a, of a, of a hopeful picture of where you see things could go, what would that look like? Well, that's, that's a great question. I know for me, when I have questioned my sanity of staying engaged with the church, yeah, you know, oftentimes I've looked outside of the U.S. You know, I stay connected to to people outside of our context because it just gives me so much more hope that, sure. okay, that church doesn't have to be totally immersed in consumerism and celebrity culture. Like there are literally just so many people, wonderful people, living like Jesus in the world, mm-hmm. uh, and and let's keep learning from them. Let's keep let's keep challenging our churches in america to look more like that and, and there's so many beautiful churches in, in america too they just don't get a lot of press sure um you don't you don't get on the news for just loving your your city really well and and there are so many beautiful people living like jesus and experiencing community and and all that but in, in terms of the future of the church i mean what i what i dream about is really for the church to look a lot more like the parachurch hmm so and I talk about this in the book because, I mean, you asked about like, what are some different, um, if, if we wanted to deal with the financial driver, because that's, that's a big deal. Sure. Um, and, and if we wanted to, to look at a fundamentally different type of organization or institution, um, I think that's a good place to look is, is like an organization like Young Life or InterVarsity or, you know, um, somebody, how are, how are they organized? Well, they're, they're, they pay more of the kind of apostolic leaders. So the network leaders and the people that are, that are more pastoral are really leading the small groups. These aren't paid people. Um, These are, are people that are just have normal jobs or they're students and they, and they're just learning. They're in the process. Hmm. Um, What I dream about is, is a move away from the auditorium as the, as the center of Christianity, because what happens is if, if you build a big building, hmm. um, a bunch of seats facing a platform, you're, you're kind of obligated to have a celebrity type leader that that's good in front of large crowds of people. Sure, 
Um, and that's going to draw certain types of people. And then if you want to incorporate art, you know, you, you got to do it a certain way that's going to keep everybody happy. And, and the whole thing just drives a lot of what we're seeing today. And if, so if we don't like that pattern, you got to change the, the, the fourth place. And this is, this is why I say, and there's kind of two ways out of the fourth place. One, um, do do a do church without the central building and this doesn't mean you don't have buildings if you meet in homes meet sure. in gyms meet in community center wherever you want to meet um but if we can make that less central and make what's what's more central what jesus actually left us which was family meal hmm. you know if we, if we could make community the center and sharing life sharing food sharing resources, knowing each other, personal spiritual practices, you know, growing um, in our in prayer, growing in our understanding of the scripture and and learning to feed ourselves hmm. um, and, and feed ourselves in the context of a few relationships. That's that's all we really need. Jesus left us what we need. He never yep. said you need the auditorium. That's for me. That's totally optional. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. If we could have a network of small family meals. Uh, and there's a lot of organizations doing this. So, I mean, Communitas does this. The V3 sure. Network does this. There's there's Tampa Underground. There's a lot of great people out there doing this. Um, and then the other way out of the fourth place is to convert your fourth place, convert your auditorium into a community center, into a health clinic, hmm. you know, into a safe place for the neighborhood. So if you've if you've had this ethic of separation where you know, we got to keep this the holy place for the holy insiders. Uh, we got to shift that theology to to a New Testament theology of temple that that we want this to be a place of sending, a place of relationship, a place of redemption. Um, and really, I, I love the image of exile that yeah. we're um, we're a people without a home. You know, this this is Jesus. You know, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah, um, we follow a homeless man. We don't need these beautiful, pretty homes. What we need to do with our with our homes that we have, you know, if you have a building, uh, how can you use it? How can you you change the the ethos of it to be a safe place for your neighborhood? Yeah. So that it, it postures itself as a place of service, as a place of love, um, genuinely, rather than kind of this imperialistic place. And and so many of our forms, you know, even our the church I'm serving at, it's it's interesting because it was built with this giant cross that literally towers over the neighborhood. <laughs> sure. Uh, which, which is a direct connection to Constantine. Yep. And the front wall that faces the road is literally a brick wall with no windows. Hmm. Um, you know, so, so many of our buildings, so many of our forms are structured to separate us, to yeah. say we are against you. And so we have to do a lot of work to say we are for you. We love you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the work that the institutional church has to do. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something I could buy into. I remember working at a, at a church, and they had a giant LED wall. And I said, guys, what if we... I said, what if we did the Super Bowl here? Like, I mean, it's the best sound system in the city. It's the amazing... You know, what if, and then it was like, hey, what if we did food trucks out front? Or what if we let people, you know, like, what if we got alcohol license and actually let them have a beer in here? And, you know, yeah. and you bring the community together and you're actually watching the Super Bowl in a sanctuary and having a beer with your neighbors that you've yeah. never met. And it was, it was the set apartness of like, no, we could never do that. We can't have, we can't, you, we can't use our yeah. video wall. Could you imagine, could you imagine putting a secular commercial on this video wall underneath this beautiful church yeah. or underneath this beautiful cross? And you're like, it sounds like we got an idol we got to smash. 
You know what I mean? Because yeah, it runs really, really deep. Thanks for writing the book, man. It it really has helped me think differently about, um, you know, of what, what it could be. And then on the other hand, I get, I get sad because I go, is it the eternal carrot in front of the, in front of the horse of going like, it could be, but will we ever get there? I I mean, that's a world that I'd want to, the fourth place world is one that I could give my life to. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I just, I also kind of grieve wondering if there's enough people out there to actually make this happen or if it just is going to be a, a really great thought experiment of what could happen until we're forced to actually make changes okay. because the old way doesn't work anymore, you know? Yeah, no, it's a good question. What, what gives me hope is, is you know, not always to look at the forest, but look at some of the trees hmm. and and to see some of the people that are doing this, you know, I, there's always kind of this remnant theology of like, you know, I, I think of the prophet Elijah, he was so discouraged or just like, there's nobody left God, yeah. you know, am <laughs> I the only one? And, and, and God's like, no, nah, like I've, I've reserved a remnant. They, they're, they're still doing it. And I look around the world and I, I get really discouraged easily yeah. uh, when I look at the forest, but when I look at some of the individual trees, I'm just like, there's hope and that person hmm. loved that person. I mean, I'm seeing so much in terms of racial reconciliation right now. And, people making individual choices to really, you know, to move across the aisle, to, to, to learn things that they're uncomfortable learning. And is everybody doing it? No. You know, will social media ever admit any of this is happening? Mm. <laughs> you know, not so much, but, but individuals, <laughs> um, have the ability and, and there's so many beautiful communities doing this stuff. So that, that's what gives yeah. me hope, um, that Jesus is still at work. He's still creating good things. And it's and it's worth it. I wish I wasn't a natural pessimist, uh, and and I want to I want to see the trees, and I because I know there are beautiful trees being planted and nurtured, and uh-huh. uh, and maybe it's still just some of those wounds of of being you know being a product of the a waste product of of what it takes to feed the institution that I, that has still got me a little bit bummed out. But well, that's I, uh, that's real i mean the the wounds are very real there's so much hurt that's happened and it grieves yeah. me and yeah. yeah well keep writing you got another book coming up or what do you because you better you're a great writer oh thanks i i've got a couple that i'm i'm dreaming about i'm kind of waiting for the time and space and the the burden really to kind of say now's the time hmm. to do it um i've got a couple kind of going through my head awesome. thinking about it well, let's have you back on if you're willing. Like, this was a great conversation, and we got way more to talk about. So, oh, I know. I feel like we just scratched the surface on some of this stuff. It'd be fun. I would, I would love it. Thanks for joining this show today, man. Absolutely. Good to be with you. Appreciate you doing this. Yeah, happy to. Again, what a great guest. That's Matt Brolite. And his book, Out of the Fourth Place, is available on Amazon. Uh, and again, it's spelled like out of the fourth, so the the number four. Not Don't spell it all out. And if you want uh, more information on his blog, you can go to outofthefourthplace.com. And if you want to hear some of his sermons uh, or the preaching team that he was talking about, that's northseattlechurch.org. We'll get you to that. Uh, and one thing you could do to help me that I often forget to ask for, and people around me are saying, you got to let people know, is... Um, 
one of the most helpful things for a podcaster is reviews and ratings on the platforms that you listen to the show. So if you listen on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you might listen to this podcast, if you would just take two or three minutes and give me a really good rating and maybe a couple of really kind things in the comments, I'm going to start reading those on the show. And what that does is it lets uh, Spotify and iTunes and all those people through the algorithms it puts the show in front of people that I would never know existed and never know how to get to. And so it really does open up a really cool platform for new people to be able to hear the content of the show. And that would mean a lot to me. So please, please, please give me a couple really nice reviews and some stars and I'll talk about it on the next podcast. Yeah, I'm grateful that you joined the show today. Hope it was encouraging to you as it was to me and look forward to doing this again next week. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.